You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Yesterday, I had the opportunity to go play paintball with my boys and uh, some friends of ours up in the hills. And uh, it was really, really pretty fun most of the time until you get hit by a paintball in a sensitive place like the face or your fingers or something like that. But uh, we, had a, we had a good time. First game we played was kind of every man for themselves. So you go out and you just, there's just like there's 12 people out there and you don't know where they are. And uh, I was shooting with one person and someone came up behind me and shot me. Shot me right in the leg from behind. I didn't even see them coming. They were swarming me. I I don't like the free-for-alls that much. Uh, Some people seem to take great pleasure in trapping me and pelting me many times. Uh, I I like much better when there's sort of team, teamwork and uh, capture the flag. But but I thought about it, and I was thinking about this message a little bit, like so much of that game is deception, right? Hiding, ambushing, diversions, trying to get, that's part of the strategy, right? Is to, to win, you have to deceive, and you have to innovate, and you have to hide, and you have to trap. And uh, so much of our world is dealing with deceptions all the time. False news, good guys, bad guys. There's people on the internet that try to target teenagers to do things they shouldn't online. There are, it seems like everyone, I, every old person I know gets their Facebook hacked like twice a day. Um, There's just all of these deceptions. You get your identity stolen, so much deception that's going on all the time. So many deceivers around us all the time. You never know when you're buying a used car whether you're getting a good deal. So much deception that we deal with all the time. And Jesus, as he narrows the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he wants to let us know to beware of deceivers. Because it's one thing to get your identity stolen online. It's one thing to send something that maybe you shouldn't have sent, to, to make a deal that you shouldn't have made. It's another thing to be to buy into false truths, to be deceived and end up missing the narrow path that Scott talked about last week. And so Jesus is giving us, as, after, as he's closing his sermon, calling us to make a decision whether we're going to be in his kingdom or whether we're going to be in the world's kingdom. He's just dividing the crowd right in half. Like, will you be part of my kingdom? And these are the terms of the deal. This is the direction we're going. Or do you want to be on the wide path and go with your own kingdom or the world's kingdom. He's laid that out already and now he's telling you, but it's not just that. It's not like there's just two options and it's sort of like, um, it's sort of like easy to pick. He's like, no, there's deceivers. There are actual active agents in the world that are trying to destroy you, that are trying to lead you along the wrong path. So it's not just like you have an um, sort of a, um, an, an easy decision in front of you where the options are really clear. No, the options get obscured because there's deceivers out there. And Jesus is warning us of that. So if you would, I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 7, and I'm going to go back to verse 13 because this is tied to what Scott preached last week of the narrow and wide road, the narrow and wide gate. And, uh, and if you've got the brown Bibles, it's page 812. If you're in the reddish Bibles, it's page 997, just to help you find it, because sometimes finding things in the Bible is challenging. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 23, it's up on the screen. Uh, It's also would be good to see it in front of you as well, but here we go. Enter by the narrow gate. This is Jesus' call. Call for decision. Enter by the narrow gate. For, here's the because, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. 
and those who find it are few. Beware, verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every healthy, I'm sorry, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Oh God, we come before you. And these are the next verses that Jesus preached as part of his Sermon on the Mount. And so we go right at them. Lord, these are hard verses. These are intimidating verses. These are scary verses. As we think about predators that would come at your people from the outside and the reality that even some people who think they're your people can be self-deceived into thinking that they're your people when they're not. So Lord, as we look at some of the most intimidating and ominous words that have ever been spoken, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see them rightly, that we would heed the warnings rightly, and that we would bring ourselves into conformity with your gospel, that we would enter your kingdom rightly, that we'd be able to discern truth from error, and that we might live not under the fear of these verses, but under the confidence of knowing that these verses has helped us find you and walk in the truth. We ask for your help in understanding and applying these words. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, the context is that Jesus has described the culture of his kingdom. He started with the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. And he listed off a bunch of Beatitudes of what the, the, the values of the kingdom are, the cultures, the disposition of the kingdom citizen. He then talked about his people being persecuted because of their righteousness and the fact that he is asking them to be righteous in a way that is far beyond them. He is requiring a righteousness that is greater than the Pharisees. It must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. He talks about the kind of piety that should mark his people that's not outwardly and showy, but a praying, a fasting, a giving that is Godward and God-oriented and God-centered. He called us not to be anxious about life, that he's a good king and he knows how to take care of his subjects. He knows how to take care of his people. If he can take care of the birds and the flowers, he can take care of his people. He calls them not to judge in chapters at the beginning of chapter 7, to not be quick to judge others and not be scrupulous in terms of judging your own self, to not to take the log out of your own eye before you help with the speck in someone else's eye. And he tells us that the fulfillment of the law and the prophets is that we do unto others as we would have them do unto us. And then he calls for a response, like we talked about just a moment ago, that Scott did such a great job last week. If you didn't listen to last week's sermon, go on our website, go on our podcast and listen. He did an excellent job of sort of laying out exactly what Jesus is calling for. Like, hey, if you want to be part of this kingdom, ask, seek, knock. You can be in. You can enter by the gate. There is a gate into the kingdom. It's not fenced off entirely. There is a gate, but it's narrow. And the way is hard. And the default setting of every human being is to be on the wide road, to take the easy path, to define your own reality, and to end up in destruction. And so, 
Now, as if that isn't scary enough, as if that isn't daunting enough, he tells us that there are agents of deception, that there are deceivers out there that will try to pull you from the path, that will try to use you and will twist the truth. There will be people who appear to be on the narrow path, but aren't. And you'll need God's help to discern those things. You'll need each other's help to do that. So, two deceivers that I see in our text today. One is false prophets from the outside. The second that we'll look in verses 21 through 23 is false professors on the inside. Okay, it's just straight from the text. False prophets from the outside, verses 15 through 20. False professors on the inside of the church, verses, 7, or verses 21 through 23. So let's talk for a few minutes about false prophets from the outside. Chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, I'll read it again. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. You will recognize them by their fruits. So first of all, we'd have to just define what is a prophet. What is a prophet? So there seems to be two kinds of prophets. There's two gates, two ways, two lives, two destinies. There also seems to be two kinds of prophets, true ones and false ones, those that teach what accords with God's word and those who don't. So what are prophets? We tend to think of prophets as those who predict the future, right? That's what we tend to think. We think prophet is someone who tells us what's going to happen five years from now or ten years from now. And certainly in the scriptures, there's some of that, but the vast majority of the use of a prophet is someone who speaks for God. Someone who speaks for God. And the vast majority of times in the scriptures, people that are speaking already revealed truth about God to God's people. That's what you see in the Old Testament prophets. The idea of predicting the future, that's actually a very small minority of what a prophet may do in the Old Testament. But really, a prophet is anyone who is speaking God's word, speaking on behalf of God. In fact, to some extent, I'm a prophet right now, speaking on behalf of God to you. And so the word prophet and prophecy is very flexible. There's many different things that fall under that big category of prophet and prophecy. Primarily, it's those who preach on behalf of God, those who reveal and speak for God and call you to respond to it. So there's true ones who speak accurately about God, true prophets, and there's those that speak inaccurately about God, false prophets. Interestingly, when we look at Joel 2, we see that God says that in the new covenant, he's going to pour out his spirit on all of his people and they will all prophesy. They will all speak for God. In Acts 1.8, Jesus says to his disciples, you will be my witnesses. In a sense, kind of speak, you will speak for me in the world. You will represent me in the world. In Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit comes upon the people at Pentecost, they speak, and Peter refers back to Joel 2, saying, of course, all of us will speak God's word now. It won't just be a special class of prophets, but actually, all of us will be witnesses of the truth. We'll either be true witnesses or false witnesses. But if you claim Christ, you are witnessing you're either a true or false one. So I think what's being talked about here is, is specifically those who are trying to speak authoritatively, like I am right now, from God's Word. But I think it also applies to all of us who claim the name of Christ because we are ambassadors for Him. And we're either true witnesses or false witnesses. So we need to be aware of false prophets from the outside. We also need to keep in mind that we need to think about what kind of gospel are we portraying to the world in the way that we live, the way that we speak. It's possible for us to be in some way, small little false prophets in terms of how we 
represent the kingdom in our world. So a prophet is someone who speaks for God. Someone who speaks for God. And false prophets has been an issue throughout the entire Bible, starting with Satan in Genesis chapter 3, when he says, you will not surely die, and he seems to speak authoritatively of going, that's not what God meant. Let me tell you what reality really is. Let me really speak for God. He's holding out on you. And so Satan is actually the first false prophet, the first one to speak falsely about God. And he has been doing that from the beginning. And you see all throughout the Bible, almost every page of your Bible is dealing with this reality that lies come at us all the time. Deceivers and deceptions, false prophecy, false prophets is just almost on every page because that's Satan's greatest tool is deception. Particularly deception that looks and feels true, right? Sort of accords with what we want to be true as opposed to what God says is true. So a prophet... Not the future predictor, but someone who speaks a message on behalf of God. Beware, because there are false ones out there. Claiming, sounding so good, but not being in accord with, with what God says. A few things that Jesus tells us about false prophets very quickly. First of all, they will come. They are coming for you. Wherever you have a flock of sheep together, the wolves will notice and they'll see an opportunity. Wherever there's a sheep, there's a potential opportunity. Wolves will come. Jesus doesn't say they may come. They will come. There are false teachers that are coming for you and for your kids, for this church. Beware of false prophets who come to you. They are going to come to you. Not if, but they will. Secondly, they will appear legit at first. They're going to come in looking like sheep. Harmless, one of us. They're going to appear legit at first, but what's going to reveal them is time and their inward desires will betray them, right? The true shepherd, the true sheep, lives for the glory of their father and they seek their satisfaction in him. A wolf seeks satisfaction for themselves and preys on people. That's what a wolf does, right? A wolf's desire to use sheep, to devour sheep, to satisfy themselves is the mark of a wolf, right? And a wolf can't hide as a sheep forever. They will come in looking like that, but eventually their desires will betray them. Jesus says that. You will recognize them by their fruits. They'll appear legit at first. They can talk a good game, but they can't fake it forever. Their inward desires will be different than the sheep. They will be different, and it will betray them in how they live. Third, they will be apparent eventually. That's sort of what is a little bit frustrating about this text is that Jesus doesn't name names. He doesn't really even talk about what kind of false things they might say. And he seems to have quite a bit of confidence. You'll recognize them. You'll recognize them. I just want you to know they're there, a little bit what they're like, what to, what to look for generally, and you'll, you'll figure it out. He seems to have a confidence. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Look for the fruits. Don't look at the first impressions. Look at what's produced in their life over time. They will, appear, they will be apparent eventually to the kingdom citizen. Time and nearness will expose them. You'll be close enough to see their teeth. Close enough to hear them growl. Jesus expresses a confidence in his disciples' ability to figure them out. So that's encouraging to know that if we walk together as a flock, if we're doing things faithfully, False prophets will come, but he has confidence in his spirit and his word, in his people, 
that we'll be able to discern those things. The frustrating thing is they get really close and have time, right? Like, that's the thing. Is it's possible they could do a little bit of damage before it's fully discerned. So it's tricky. I'll have some, some ways that I think God builds into us ways to defend against that. But I just find that interesting. He doesn't spend a lot of time in this sermon laying out exactly what kinds of things, because it could be a whole range of things. False prophets could be, like, he could spend all this time. Other parts of Scripture do get into the qualities and that kind of stuff. Those are worth studying. We won't have time to get into all those now, so it's not like the Bible leaves us totally vacant on this. But here, Jesus seems to have a confidence that if we know it's coming and we test the false prophet's fruits against what's been preached in the Sermon on the Mount, that if we hear things that go against what Jesus has said about his kingdom, and we're seeing the kind of character being developed in this false prophet that goes against the Beatitudes, we'll figure it out. We'll be able to discern who these people are. But they are tricky. They are tricky. And finally, they will be condemned by God. It says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So false prophets, they will come. They'll appear legit. It'll take some time to kind of discern who they are. But ultimately, God will deal with them and will be able to recognize them. Matthew 18, verses 5 and 6. Let me just give you some other places a little bit later. Matthew says this in Matthew 18, verses 5 and 6. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. So false prophets will face a severe judgment. I think, it's, I think it's possible. In fact, I think the Bible teaches that there might be greater severity in hell. It seems like there's those who are false teachers, false prophets that lead God's people astray, get a, get a stricter, harsher judgment in hell. James 3.1, not many of you should become teachers, this right here, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So those who claim to speak a message for God are either true or false, and God ramps up the judgment on those. So God will judge, God will deal with those false prophets. So there will be some who will try to tempt us to the, to the wide path, who look like they're on the narrow path. They will come, false prophets from the outside. So what is this bad fruit? We have to go to other places in Scripture because Jesus doesn't take the time to kind of lay that out. I think we can assume it would be that which goes counter to the Sermon on the Mount. From the qualities that are demonstrated in the Sermon on the Mount, we could just, kind of, we could just sort of look at that and go, does this person match this? Is the kingdom they're preaching match this kingdom? Does the righteousness that they're preaching match this righteousness? Does the piety that they are um, that they are preaching, does it meet the piety and lifestyle of this sermon? And so we can look at that. But I think there's some other things we can look at as well in Scripture. Anything that goes against the Sermon on the Mount would be evidence that this is a false prophet. I think John's threefold test in 1 John of the legitimacy of a Christian, the three tests that are in 1 John is one, a doctrinal test. Does this person love the truth of God and the God of truth? Do they speak what accords with the Bible and do they love God? Do they, they love the truth of God and the God of truth? So test what they say. Test what the false prophet says against Scripture and see if it matches up with the essence of Scripture. The second test is the moral test. They live a life of repentance and Christ-likeness. 
So if someone comes, and even if they're saying really true things, but they're living a life that doesn't accord with that, they're living in unrepentant sin, you don't see a growing Christ-likeness in them, then you must reject them as a prophet. So there's the doctrinal test, what they say. Does it match with Scripture? Do they love the God of truth and the truth of God? The moral test, do they live a life of repentance in Christ-likeness? When you look at the fruit of their teaching in their own life, does it seem like they're embodying, not perfectly, but really, the life of repentance and Christ-likeness that accords with Scripture? And then the third test, the relational test. They love and serve fellow Christians. They love and serve fellow Christians. They're committed to people. They're accountable to people. They love and serve other people. Are they predatory? Do they seem to use people to get money or prestige? Or do they see themselves as servants of God's people, willing to go without so that God's people would have what they need? Those three tests in 1 John, I think, could be applied to those who speak God's word to us. Do they love the truth and the God of truth? Do they live a life of repentance and Christ-likeness? And do they love and serve fellow Christians in a very self-sacrificing way? That's the model of a true Christian. It's also the marks of a true or false prophet. We could also go to places like Galatians 5, where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Does this person that's teaching me these things, do they model love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Or do they mark the fruits of the flesh, the works of the flesh, earlier in Galatians 5? In Luke chapter 3, listen to this. This is John the Baptist as he's preparing the way for Jesus. Luke chapter 3. I didn't write this one down. Let me flip, flipping, flipping. Here's what he says. Luke chapter 3. So as, as uh, John the Baptist is speaking to people about the fruits of repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance is what he says. So this idea of you will know them by their fruits. We're just tracing the fruit metaphor through scripture and here's where john the baptist says says all these people were coming to him to be baptized by him and he says this is what you need to do this is what you need to do to be prepared for the kingdom that's coming bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to ourselves we have abraham as our father for i tell you god is able to raise up from these stones children for abraham don't be self-deceived that's what we're going to talk about in just a moment Don't put your confidence in the fact that you're biologically related to Abraham. That won't get you in the kingdom. So don't be self-deceived. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That sounds just like Jesus. And the crowd said, what shall we do? What does this fruit of repentance look like? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. There's a generosity that flows from you. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Then he starts calling out particular vocations. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said, Teacher, what shall we do? What does fruit of repentance look like for tax collectors? He said to them, Collect no more than your authority than you're authorized to do. Don't rip people off. Be a person of truth. The soldiers said, What about us? What about us in the military? What shall we do? Those of us that are public servants. And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. That's what bearing fruits and keeping of repentance. Like if you have a new heart, you have new desires and you don't, you're a predator to other people, right? That's what false prophets are like wolves. They devour people, bear fruit and keeping of repentance. So whatever vocation you're in, use it to serve people and not prey on them. 
That's one of the marks of those who have true fruit. We could look at Revelation chapter 2 and 3 where Jesus gives his assessment of the churches. And we could see what a true and false fruit looks like. And does this, false te- does this prophet that is coming to us, claiming to speak a message for God, accord with what the scripture says about fruit? What he says about what that life looks like before people. So, what is the New Testament answer to counter and protect from false prophets? Jesus doesn't give us an answer. He says, you'll, you'll know. But he does do other teaching, and the rest of the New Testament does some teaching. And I just want to point out to you what, what I think are the New Testament's answer to combating false prophets in the world, specifically long-term, over the course of 2,000 years. What have been the two things? I'm going I'm to lay out two things. One is a well-taught congregation, a group of people, a flock of sheep who've gathered together. Sheep are dead meat by themselves, right? So they flock together because there's safety in the flock, and they're well-taught the word so that they can smell wolves when they come, right? A well-taught congregation, that's one. Sheep are safest in a flock. So a well-taught gathering of saints is number one. Number two, led by qualified shepherds. So the way, the God-ordained way to protect against false prophets, to protect his people against false prophets, is a well-taught congregation of believers led by faithful shepherds. Let me give you an example. 1 Timothy 4, 16. Paul is writing to his protege, Timothy, who's pastoring a church, and he's giving him pastoral instruction. He says, keep a close watch on yourself, the fruit of your life, and the teaching, right? So that you're not a false prophet, Timothy. Keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. If you persist in this, if you're faithful to teach the right things and live according to your teaching, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, if you'll persist in this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You'll protect God's people from false prophets. If you prove not to be a false prophet yourself and you're looking out for a well, you're teaching the congregation you're leading the Bible and you're protecting them as a shepherd. Titus chapter 1. This would be a good one to flip open to. If you have your Bible, flip to Titus 1. I want to show you the connection here between well-qualified shepherds leading biblically-fed congregations is the New Testament antidote to false prophets. First, Titus 1, 5 through 16. Titus is one of Paul's like right-hand man. Like he sends Titus and Timothy and Tychicus and a couple other guys. They're like his special forces. Like when he has something that has to go get fixed in a church, these are the guys that he sends when he can't go himself. So here we have a letter to Titus who's supposed to go to Crete. In fact, he's been left in Crete because there's work to do. The gospel has gone there. Whenever the gospel has gone somewhere, it has, it has become congregations. You look at that in the book of Acts. Like, how did, how did the mission of Jesus go out? People went and shared the gospel. When people believed that gospel, they gathered them into churches immediately. The local church is God's plan for advancing his kingdom. Titus 1, 5 through 16, this is a little bit of interaction. Paul's giving instruction to Titus on what he is supposed to do. He says, verse 5, This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town that I directed you. The churches in Crete are a mess. They are just a mess. We'll read about that in a second. And Paul goes, I need to send Titus, my best guy, to help them find shepherds in their congregations who will lead them, or their dead meat. Verse 6, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers, are not open to the charge of debauchery and subordination. 
For an overseer, just another word for shepherd or elder, as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. We could say poor in spirit. We could say beatitudes, right? This is a man who can teach the word of God faithfully and lives it, lives the, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, teach the congregation. I lost my spot. Uh, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give sound instruction and also to rebuke those who contradict it. False prophets. Verse 10. Look, here's the because. Here's why elders are so critical to these churches at Crete, Titus. Your job is critical. Here's why. Verse 10. Because. Four. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. Especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced. There are wolves devouring those poor flocks. And without shepherds, they're dead. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families and teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. (laughs) This testimony is true. The Cretans are prone to deception and self-destruction. They are prone to that. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works, their fruit. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Churches are getting destroyed because they don't have faithful shepherds. So the New Testament instruction against false prophets is well-ordered congregations where every member is taught the Bible really well and not vulnerable to that by shepherds who model what true prophets look like. They live it. They speak it. So a very deliberate, healthy, biblically-oriented, and biblically-saturated local church is God's supernatural way to combat false prophets. Galatians 1, Paul writes to the Galatian church because they're, about, they're being overrun by wolves who are teaching a false doctrine. And here's what he says in verse 6, I am astonished at how quickly you are deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. You're apostatizing. Not that there is one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ, false prophets. But even if we, meaning the apostles, Or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So the the whole idea of like, touch not the Lord's anointed? No. We're the anointed apostles, and if we preach a different gospel, you kick us out of the church. Even if an angel comes and preaches a different gospel, you kick them out of the church, which assumes that the congregation knows what the truth is, because they've been taught well. They've been taught well by faithful shepherds. As we have said before, now we say it. If anyone is preaching to a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Let him be thrown into the fire, is the way Jesus put it. So, God's plan to fight false teaching is not more podcasts. I love podcasts. It's not God's method for fighting it, no matter how, how, much, you might, how much we might be helped by them. It's not by discernment blogs who just love to snipe at people whenever they get a soundbite that's not quite right, right? No. 
Those can be helpful sometimes, but I think they're often very unhelpful. It's not YouTube channels. It's a local church where the Bible is taught and where you can see the life of the shepherds. Always prioritizing the teaching and example of your own local pastor above the internet. Always. If he's faithful. We are tempted to think that we might be less likely to get hurt if we're not joining a church. I think Jesus would say the same, the exact opposite, that a sheep by itself is in huge trouble. They have no shepherd looking after them. They have no flock to hide in. We're tempted, and that's an indictment on churches that have hurt people. We ought to fix the church. But it also is a little bit of a deception on our part to think that we would be safer not being in the church than we would be than we are outside of it. It's just blatantly dumb for a sheep not to be in the safe comfort of the, sh- of the flock that God has provided under the... The whole metaphor of sheep and wolves leads us to that conclusion. Point number two. Just want to go quicker. So false prophets from the outside are real, and they're coming. But you will recognize them, and God has given you a mechanism to fight against that deception which is the local church, well taught from the Bible by faithful shepherds. Secondly, false professors on the inside. This is the scary one. That's scary enough. The false prophets from the outside that could lead us to hell. False professions on the inside. Verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, this is not a small category of people, but many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out your demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Scariest verses maybe in the whole Bible. You can think you're in and you're not. This overlaps so much with the false prophets, right? False prophets would say, Lord, Lord. Maybe even some false prophets don't even know they're false prophets. That's what's so scary about this. But this also is a little bit distinct because this seems to be those who are on the inside. He talks about those on the outside. This is on the inside. We find that false prophets come to you saying things. False professors come to Christ saying things on the last day. And there's far more who claim to be Christians than those who Jesus would claim as Christians. So people are using that category for themselves in ways that Jesus would not assign to them. We have this profession. They make a confession to Jesus. This is why we think we're in the kingdom, Jesus. And Jesus then gives his confession. I don't know you. I don't recognize you. So they stand before Jesus and they look at, look at this. They stand before Jesus and they say, look at the reasons for why we should be in, Jesus. And it's all about them, isn't it? Look at their confession. It's all about them. We deserve to be in because of what we have done. Jesus, which goes against the gospel. It goes against the gospel, no matter how good it might be, how much it's for Jesus. They're wanting to get in based on what they've done. There's absolutely nothing in their confession about who Christ is and what he's done for them. There's no claim on receiving the work of Christ for them. They're putting their confidence in their work for Christ. And shockingly, he calls them workers of lawlessness. Here's, if we were to kind of expand what Jesus might say. Jesus might say, you never came to me. You did things for me, but you never came to me. You never asked, seek, knock. You just did stuff. 
And now you're trusting in that stuff. You never let me call the shots. You called me Lord, Lord, but you didn't do what I asked. You did things for me, but you never stopped to ask what I would like for you to do. You assumed that you could please me on your terms. And I want you to depart from me. I think these three verses cut right to the heart of what so much of American Christianity has been pumping out for decades and exports around the world. Let me just cut deep now. Number one, the idea that as long as you say the right words, Lord, Lord, you're good. As long as you prayed the prayer, you're good, right? You said the right things at the right time, you're good. And Jesus would say, no. Lord, Lord, that's right. But that's not enough. Number two, as long as you have, as long as you're sincere, you are good. It seems like these people are very sincere. They're very sincere in their service to God. But you can be sincerely wrong. You can be sincerely wrong. You can be on the wide path and be very sincere. (laughs) Number three, as long as you have an effective and maybe even a supernatural ministry, then you must be one of God's kids. No. Look at what they did. We prophesied in your name. We preached Christ. We cast out demons in your name, and we did mighty works in your name. Like That's not what saves you. There's nothing about that in the Sermon on the Mount. I never asked for that. Those are good things, but not if they come from a heart that doesn't know Christ. Jesus says that to the church in Revelation chapter 2, the Ephesian church. Like, I love your deeds, your works, your theology. It's excellent, but you've left your first love, so I'm closing you down if you don't turn. I do not care about your works. I don't care about those if there isn't a heart for me. You don't know me. Number four, the end justifies the means. As long as the gospel got out, Jesus says, no, you're a worker of lawlessness. You preached in my name. You cast out demons. You did many good works. I count that as lawlessness because it wasn't connected to the vine. That's bad fruit. Jesus counts their supernatural ministry as lawlessness. So not just the ends justify the means, but the means matter. It needs to come from a heart of faith. Whatever is not of faith is sin. So there are churches and ministries that have stunningly good orators, like just spellbinding preachers, who prophesy in your name, right? We were very effective in our preaching, Jesus. They boast massive deliverance ministries, casting out demons in your name. And really move the needle on social causes. We did many mighty works in your name. We started all this stuff. And yet, Jesus says, many of them will be discarded as lawlessness because they don't know Jesus. They claim him, but they don't know him. So, what is the New Testament answer to counter and protect against false professions? Because this is scary, right? I think this is where The New Testament is very clear that I think the practice of baptism in the Lord's Supper helps us protect against false professions. Someone who has been receiving the true gospel then responds in a way that represents the Sermon on the Mount, that represents the fruit of that, and then we as the church are given the authorization. The keys of the kingdom, as Matthew Matthew 16 and 18 says, those who profess this faith should be brought in. You are to speak for heaven as a local church. And the two ways that you speak is through these ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. You have the way of bringing someone in who matches up a true profession of faith. 
And then you have a way of nourishing them and helping them check one another through the Lord's Supper. And if they no longer are living in accord with the faith that they profess, you have a way of putting them out of the church called church discipline, removing them from the Lord's table. It talks about this in 1 Corinthians 6. Remove the immoral brother who's claiming to be a Christian yet sleeping with his mother-in-law. Do not even eat with him, it says in 1 Corinthians 6, which means the Lord's Supper. Don't give him assurance of his salvation when he's walking out of step with the gospel. You want him to hear that from you now as a warning and not one day before Christ. The church has this responsibility. The local church has this responsibility to use the ordinances in such a way as to protect against false professions of faith. So that when you get to judgment day, you aren't surprised because you've had his people speaking very clearly to you about your spiritual condition, right? Jesus gives us warnings about the two major deceivers that will trick you into thinking you're on the narrow path when you're actually on the broad path. These are scary and intimidating, but they're intended to be an act of grace. God gives you the test before you get there. Judgment day is coming. I'll tell you what the grade will be. I'll give you the answer. I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Choose life, right? Choose life. So you can take a glimpse at judgment day early. And you get to look at the test before you take it. God has given the church to guard and protect these, his kingdom, to promote his kingdom in the world rightly through these instruments of a well-taught congregation from the Bible led by faithful shepherds and elders who then together practice baptism in the Lord's Supper effectively so that people can know they're Christians and not be deceived by themselves. So God has given a church to guard and protect from these deceptions. Three takeaways. We're almost done. Three takeaways. First of all, I think you have to admit you can be deceived. I think he's laying this out because this is a real danger for the people that are following him. You have the ability to be deceived. You might be saying there, not me. I think right about everything. And I listen to the right radio stations. Right? No, I think you have to admit that you have the ability to be deceived about others and about yourself. I think there needs to be a humility about the fact that we could potentially be deceived. How can you know if that internet or podcast preacher is a false prophet? In some ways, you can't, unless you know them. You could test what they say is true, that's good, that's important, that's essential. But you can't see how he lives and what his teaching actually produces in the people that actually live among him. You can't know that. You could approximate, but you can't know. Never put more weight and emphasis on a Bible teacher you don't actually know than the one who is faithfully teaching you the Bible that you do know. Put the weight there, I think, is the New Testament teaching. I think a great illustration of this is Robbie Zacharias. He said so many true things. But one of the things about Ravi Zacharias, who got caught up in all this sort of sexual scandal that came out after he was dead, one thing that people said about Ravi, so many helpful things, and I think we should hold on to those helpful things. I don't mean to discard those. But one thing that they said about Ravi was that he was always isolated. He never was a member of a church, and no one really was friends with him. He never had any real friends. So he had this giant ministry named after him, a giant ministry that was serving him. And if that brilliant man with all of that knowledge 
could self-deceive to such a point where he is preying on people, then I think we have to be humble enough to go, I could too, without accountability, without teaching, without shepherding, without help. Success cannot protect us from deception. Number two, live like judgment is real and coming. Because Jesus is very clear now that bad trees that produce bad fruit get thrown into eternal fire. False professions depart from Christ on judgment day for eternity. The thing that's really fascinating about this is that Jesus is just never deceived. He's not deceived. We can't come before him and think that we're going to be able to give our own merits and have, he's going to see, I don't know you. I don't know this profession. I didn't, this isn't what I wanted from you. I wanted you to come to me in repentance and faith. I wanted you to trust in me. I wanted you to come and plead the the mercy of Christ. I wanted you to be poor in spirit. I wanted you to mourn and long for comfort. I wanted you to be meek. I wanted you to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I wanted mercy. I wanted you to love mercy. I wanted you to be pure in heart. I wanted you to be a peacemaker. And I wanted you to be willing to be persecuted for my sake. I'm not looking for the big fancy stuff that makes the headlines that American Christians love to say is blessed by God. I want your heart. I want you. I want the real you. I want you to trust in me. I want you to turn from your sins and put your trust in my death, burial, and resurrection and come under my rule and reign. And then lastly, embrace kingdom life, which is all about knowing and being known. It's about knowing the truth about Scripture so that you're not tempted by falsehood. It's about knowing your shepherds who keep a watch on your soul. And it's ultimately about knowing your Savior. To hear on that last day, not depart from me, I never knew you, but well done, good and faithful servant. I recognize you. We've been talking for a long time, haven't we? Union with Christ is essential. Are you united to Christ? Make union with Christ everything. Make, this is why we make meaningful membership such a big deal in our church, because deception is real from the outside and inside. We need each other's help. The fundamental criteria for the kingdom is not what you did for Jesus, but what he did for you and him receiving you. So I would call us all to turn from our sin and whatever deceptions we're believing in from the outside or the inside. Get to know your Bible from the inside out and find a good local church that will help protect you. And you can help protect others under the faithful leadership of faithful shepherds exercising baptism and Lord's Supper in a way that helps us know that we're the real deal and when we get to heaven, we receive, we're received by Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you that Jesus gives us a warning on what is coming our way. It's coming. It's going to sneak up behind us. It's going to get us when we're not looking and so we need each other. We need your word. We need your spirit. We thank you for the confidence that we will recognize it. You give us, you give us these truths and you give us these warnings because you think that we can heed them and avoid the disaster that comes. And so, Lord, we pray that you would protect us, that you'd be convicting our hearts where we need to be convicted, that you'd be encouraging us where we need to be encouraged. Thank you for providing ways to protect us from deceivers. Lord, help us to take advantage of those ways and help us find ways to help protect others, to call them into a relationship with Christ, union with Christ, really knowing Jesus and him knowing us, and to journey together as a flock carefully shepherded, well-taught, looking out for each other. God, we ask for your help in this, and we thank you that you've been doing that for 2,000 years. You continue to preserve your people. 
We pray that you would continue to preserve your people and bring them safely home. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.